Streaming audio is made possible by Hungry Harvest, delivering farm-fresh produce and grocery staples to your door. Every delivery allows you to support local donations that fight hunger in the community. Learn more at HungryHarvest.net. It's time. You're listening to the National Edgar Allan Poe Theater on the Air. Sponsored in part by Baltimore's own Raven Beer, this ongoing series brings to your ears the best-known works from America's revered grandfather of horror and suspense. From room to room in the asylum of the mysterious Dr. Mallard, Poe's wretched souls describe their awful tales while they await the doctor's revolutionary system to treat and cure the mentally crippled. In today's episode, the National Edgar Allan Poe Theatre on the Air presents Part 1 in our two-part adaptation of Poe's cautionary tale of the wages of sin, Never Bet the Devil Your Head. In our last episodes, the two-part musical Edgar Allan, we explored the childhood days of Poe. I am the descendant of a race who's imaginative and easily excitable temperament. Has always rendered them remarkable. Now, Professor Mallard leads us down the hall for a conversation with another of his children. Let us continue our tour. Every journey is a search, isn't it? All tours are explorations. What are we looking for? Sometimes we know, sometimes not. My children, my children, offer the most enthralling mysteries imaginable. Next in our gallery of peculiarities is something quite special. This man is a man of letters, a literary soul, a writer of some considerable repute. He insists on an unusual appellation. He prefers to be called simply the author. Only that. A time will come when, as part of his therapy, he will be obliged to confront his name. However, that day is not this day. Of course, the legally binding documents you signed before we commenced our tour preclude you from sharing any information about my child... uh, my patients, with the public at large, correct? Good. An interesting case. A criminal one which involved the police, a homicide, and a mystery. His natural mental instability, which may also be the source of his creative spark, has been exacerbated by... aesthetics. Literary theory has nearly destroyed the man. Philosophies of his own devising have bedeviled the poor devil in a way we can only call, well, devilish. I believe you will find my therapeutic approach to this case interesting. It features a technique I call enforced creativity. Ah, here we are. Good morning. Hard at work, I see. Please, just... One moment. I must say, I'm pleased to find him working. He seems to vacillate between two states, feverish work and catatonia. The former is infinitely preferable to the latter. Nearly finished. Nearly. Are you early? I don't believe so. I make it a habit to always arrive at the right moment. In that case, this must be the right moment. And... And... Done. Congratulations. Thank you. I recognize you. Do you? That's good. And, of course, you know who I am. I am the author. Of course. You've completed the story. I believe it is ready for publication. For publication. And you believe that is why I am here? Of course. That's why you are here. The story... You commissioned it. You asked me to write this story. Well, I am most pleased you finished it. 
You do still intend on publishing it, don't you? Most certainly. In your magazine, in The Dial. Yes, The Dial. It seems he imagines me an emissary from a magazine in this moment. In the next, I could easily be his doctor again. I do not believe the story will require any editing of any kind. It is ready to go to print, as is. Now, take it and be gone. Why the hurry? I want it out of this house. Why so worried? Do you believe it to have some totemistic quality? I simply wish it gone. My reasons are my own. Is it the content you fear? Or does fear make me content? Wordplay. Words do play. And tease. And haunt. And scar. Read it to me. I might do that. Do you think your story a moral one? You would ask about that. So, in addition to my story, you want more. The truth comes out. And what is the truth? You're here to interrogate me regarding my literary precepts. Interrogate may be a little strong. You can call it Huckleberry Glazed Ham for all I care, but an interrogation is an interrogation is an interrogation. Well, compliance is mandatory, so perhaps it is not a poor word choice after all. While compliance may be mandatory, yet I've no wish to comply. Come, sir, let us not be disagreeable. Do not insist on traveling down this path. You know what awaits you if you do. A threat. A foreshadowing. Now, please read to me what you have written. Every tale should have at its core a moral. Do you not agree? What is the moral of the tale you have written? Perhaps you will tell me. Perhaps. Please read the story. The Dial, being a literary journal and you being their emissary... I had the impression you wanted to discuss my literary theory. (sighs) Very well, then speak. Hold forth on your theories. Precepts, literary tenets. Of course, every story must have a moral. What do you understand to be the difference between a story with a moral and a moral story? Sophistry. I do not abide in it, and you can inform your editors, your agents, or whoever you wish, the devil himself, if you like. I must insist you calm yourself. Every fiction has a moral. Critics have proven this through scientific misdiscombobulation. The result, therefore, lies beyond refutation. It cannot be denied through amputation or abbreviation, a truism that is clear to the nation, no matter one's individual station, and despite overhyped sensation, it is a tautology, giving those who argued the opposite great consternation. Yes, this patient has a history of falling into a rhyming cycle of repetition, a condition not uncommon in writers of his ilk. It is informally called Moon and June Syndrome. It can last as much as a quarter of an hour. So, as you can see, I'm sorry. Are you not paying attention? Hmm? Yes, yes, quite. Quite obvious when you put it that way. On the contrary, it is not obvious at all. It isn't? Well, what do you think? It isn't. Not at all. Fine. Now, continuing our literary dissection. 
as to the practical practice which causes the moral of a tale to present itself to the reader, critics have cleared this up for us as well. Take, for instance, the novelist, any novelist, or indeed any literary teller of tales. They need not worry about supplying a moral. They may not even be conscious of the presence of said moral. The critic will uncover it, even if the writer is unaware of its existence. In fact, in a rare feat of literary acumen, the critic can also discern morals that aren't there at all, and others that are present that should not be. Yes, yes, very incisive. Let us move on. Tell me about Toby. That is what your story is about, is it not? My new novel, which of course is neither new nor novel. Though I recount events that occurred some time in the past, I have never until recently set them down into a prose narrative. So, by that reckoning, it is new. I'd like you to read your story to me. You are the author, are you not? I am. Read. I'm not feeling well. Perhaps later. I believe if you read your story out loud to me... You will feel better. You do. Indubitably. Fine. And here, I opened my manuscript and began reading to Dr. Dullard. There he stood, a veritable emblem of idiocy. I can hear you. You do realize that. The look of abject ignorance on his face caused a laugh to well up within me. One that I employed a great effort to suppress. Yes, still... still hearing you. I am reading from my manuscript, just as you insisted. That's in your manuscript. Those words, let me see that. Now, now, you asked for this, and now you shall assuredly get it. May I continue? Or have you changed your mind? Continue. Very well. After the exceptionally rude interruption, I continued. I was now about to introduce my subject and the hero of the tale. I told the doctor his name was Toby. Doctor, his name was Toby. Yes, so I gathered. Toby. Toby, damn it. I knew Toby from infancy. He was a most unusual baby. Precociousness, thy name was Toby Dammit. At five months of age, he would get himself into such an apoplectic rage that one could hardly understand a word he said. At six months, he would gnaw on packs of playing cards, and at seven months, he began to most impertinently inconvenience the female babies. Yes... Toby was, not to put too fine a point on it, a rather wayward infant, given to vice, gambling, and womanizing. Before the months of his young life had entered double digits, he had garnered a reputation around town as a braggart and an often surly customer. But he was my friend, and we crawled around together side by side until time eventually abducted us into adulthood. As the creepy music in our minds became audible, I continued. You see, 
as was the custom of the time when rearing an infant, it was deemed essential to discipline them with sound corporal punishments. Spare the rod, as it were. However, as the world revolves from right to left, to be effective, one must discipline the child from right to left. Toby's mother, being of questionable character and of the left-handed persuasion, wrongly disciplined Toby with her left hand, which indeed had the ill effect of beating the good out of the child rather than the bad. The die was cast. Now, of my friend's many verbal mannerisms, his favorite was indeed... I'll bet the devil my head... I was with Toby in the Drunken Beetle, one of our favorite haunts. This phrase... I'll bet the devil my head. ...had become my companion's primary verbal companion. He said it constantly, and often in contexts that made little or no sense. Were he in need of tissue of a lavatorial nature, for instance, to satisfactorily complete a much-needed constitutional, he might say... Oh, but the devil my head, I need paper for my undercarriage. More often, however, this now constantly uttered refrain of my friend Mr. Dammitz was used in the context of wagering, making a bet. Yes, no one knew Toby better than I. Remember, we were muling infants together. Oh, how we loved to mule. We took to muling from the womb. Of course, as age claimed us as age must, unless one dies, ending one story altogether, which might in that case be called the end of an age. But I digress. Indeed you do. I shall continue. We should be most appreciative if you would. Very well, then. Please. Thank you. Not at all. You are too kind. Read the damn story! (gasps) Ahem. As age claimed us, the vice that grew most with Toby's growth was gambling. Yeah. He was greedily capricious when it came to games of chance. Toby would threaten a wager in nearly any occasion. However, being a rather miserly fellow due to having little or no income, he would never offer to wager a specific sum. That might cause him to incur a loss of funds, and having, as I stated, so little in the way of wealth to begin with, this was to be avoided like the devil. In truth, one could say, without fear of contradiction, that Toby Dammit was a detestably poor bugger. His confidence and demeanor, especially when encouraged by spirits, suitably belied the reality of his economic disposition. His poverty of means in no way reflected itself in a poverty of vitality. Or volume, for that matter. For even now, he exclaimed... I'll bet the devil my head that I can down this pint faster than you can. Toby, dear friend, we must depart. The day draws to an end. It's the bewitching hour by which I mean I am bedeviled by hunger, and it's time for my supper. You've already proven your unparalleled prowess in the alcoholic arts. No patron here at the Drunken Beetle doubts your Dionysian dexterity. Let us be on our way. Yes, in a moment, dear friend, in a moment. 
Look at the expression on this poor wretch's, poor wretched face. His very life requires defeat at my hands. As if the formation of the universe itself, all of the spinning dust that coalesced into the cosmos and every cause and effect chain of causes and effects, and all of the events of human history have brought us here to this singular moment where a great man... I shall outdrink a lesser he. All right, you cur. Prepare for your ignominy. On your mark, get set, and... I win. You lose. Good day to you. Indeed, dear reader and or listener, Toby had won, but no money changed hands, for no money had been wagered. The betting particulars of the challenge were merely those of... I'll bet the devil on my head. I can... As I have indicated, this phrase had become indispensable to Toby in a wide variety of situations, for any number of suffixes could be added to the demon phrase, such as... I'll bet the devil my head. And I'll arrive at the pub before you. Or perhaps I'll bet the devil my head. That I can remember all the words to... And here Toby would name such and such a thing, or I'll bet the devil my head. That this beaver is indeed sentient. Here, allow me to poke at it with my fingers. And so on. However, on this occasion, his boastful challenge ended with... That I can down this pint faster than you. Which he did. I win. You lose. But I repeat myself. Quite. Admonition. Apology. Acknowledged. To continue. So, now, having vanquished his foe, the ever-parsimonious Mr. Dammit merely paid for his libation, leaving nothing more. I pitied the crestfallen barkeep and so felt compelled to leave the man a small gratuity on my friend's behalf. From whence environs, we ambled off into the hungry dusk. Toby, dear fellow, your devotion to vice, as exemplified by your repeated use of that terrible phrase... What phrase? You know what phrase. My friend, there are many phrases in both the known and the unknown universe. How can I be expected to know which phrase you mean? I won't repeat it. And why not? It is unnecessary, because you know it. I'll bet the devil my head I don't. Aha! Oh, that phrase? I'll bet the devil my head I don't say it as much as you say I say it. I say, finally, the covered bridge. Our journey is nearly complete. Toby's journey was most certainly near its terminus. As we entered the covered bridge, the contrast between the external glare and the interior gloom struck heavily upon my spirits. Not so with Dammit. 
his spirits seemed uplifted by the dank darkness. I'll bet the devil my head if this isn't the finest bridge in these parts. It could do with a few more windows, but that in no way diminishes the wondrous bridgeness of this bridge. And here Toby became quite adamant upon the matter. Do you hear me? This is an excellent bridge. Its location, connecting as it does this bank with the one on the far side of the stream, is ideal. Do you hear me? Ideal. I'll bet the devil my head. Never was a bridge constructed in a more advantageous location. Then suddenly and quite unexpectedly, the quiet and dark of the covered bridge exploded into light, color, and sound revealing itself as nothing less than a Mexican fiesta. to the National Edgar Allan Poe Theatre on the Air and part one of our two-part production of Never Bet the Devil Your Head, adapted for radio by Tony Sendez. Never Bet the Devil Your Head was directed by Alex Zavistovich and produced by Ty Ford with the voices of Tony Sendez, Brian McDonald, Alex Zavistovich, and Jennifer Restack. Poe Theatre on the Air theme by Greg Martin. The National Edgar Allan Poe Theater on the Air is sponsored in part by Baltimore's own Raven Beer, purveyors of Poe-inspired craft beer. More information can be found on the web at ravenbeer.com. More information on the National Edgar Allan Poe Theater on the Air can be found at poetheater.org. Until next time, when we bring you part two of Never Bet the Devil Your Head, this is Alex Avistovich reminding you that all that we see or seem is but a dream within a dream. Oh.